Continuing our series today, and we come to Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. Would you give your attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word? After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for preserving it for us so that we might have it today read in a language that we understand. And we ask now that you would grant to us more than earthly understanding. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things, that you would teach us and train us and correct us and even rebuke us for righteousness' sake so that we may be made whole. Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your children Lord, that you would lead them to drink deeply from your word and to walk with you in paths of righteousness. And I pray, oh God, that you would help me. Would you protect me from error? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, oh God. You are my rock, you are our rock and our redeemer. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. In 2005, an author by the name of David Foster Wallace said this in a commencement speech, and this is a commencement speech to the graduates of Kenyon College. I just want to read a portion of what he said. This is in 2005, just a few years before he took his own life. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He continues, says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. And then he concludes by saying this, But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. Worship is a default setting. Worship is a default setting of the human soul. David Foster Wallace was right. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. Everybody unconsciously worships something or someone. Everybody worships. No one is immune. And for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we know two things about this reality. First, we know as Christians that the only one worthy of our worship is God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And second, even though we know this, that, right, the only one worthy of our worship is God, even though we know that, we are also prone to neglect it We are also prone to turn away all too easily to worship the things, to worship the people, to worship the experiences of this world rather than worship God. If you've been with us through the book of Revelation, you know that this truth has been highlighted for us time and again, has it not? It has made the case here. We've had the case made that humanity is ultimately divided into two groups of people, two groups of worshipers, those who would worship Satan by bowing the knee to the beast, receiving his mark and drinking from that cup of immorality and abomination that was there in the hand and offered by the great prostitute Babylon, or those who would worship God by bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, receiving his mark and suffering with him for the sake of his kingdom here on earth. It's actually for such a difficult book, this has been pretty simple. You either worship Satan or you worship God. You worship one or the other. 
And now as we come to this passage, 19, 1 through 10 this morning, we have a familiar scene, don't we? A scene that we've seen many times in Revelation, particularly right toward the end of one of these cycles. And we're on the sixth of seven cycles, and we're getting close to the end. So it's not surprising that we see what we see here. And what do we see? We see all of heaven erupting in glorious celebration. In fact, just reading this text as we did earlier on the surface, the focus of this passage is unmistakable. Seven times we are called to worship. Seven times in this passage we are called to worship. Look at those with me real quick. Notice that the word hallelujah occurs. This is a a word that was brought over from the Hebrew to the English, and it it literally means praise the Lord, hallel, to to praise, and yah, which was short for the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's four times. Four times. Verse one, you see it there. Verse three, see it there. Verse four, see it there. And verse six, And there's also three other calls to worship. Besides that, and hallelujah is a call to worship, there's three others found. Look in verse 5. Praise our God. There's a call. Praise our God. In verse 7, some take this as three different ones, but we'll take it as one. Let us rejoice and let us exult and let us give him the glory. And look in verse 10. Worship God. You read this passage, and hopefully you do this when you read the word. If you're looking for main ideas and and main points, you look for that which is repeated over and over again. And unmistakably, the purpose of this passage, the focus of this passage is worship. But why? It's the question students of the Bible will ask, why? Why this Glorious celebration. Why these summons to praise? Well, we're going to find the answer. It's uh, two great themes is what I'm calling it. The four, the conditional clauses, right? We find the answer in two great themes of this passage. If you're taking notes, it will be these two themes that make up our outline this morning. And so the first of these great themes, the first one The first reason to praise God is his sovereign judgments, God's sovereign judgments. You might remember that last week we considered chapter 18, which I told you was a lament or it's a funeral dirge, right? It's a a lament for Babylon, who is the great prostitute. And remember, Babylon here is the symbol. This is a picture book, not a puzzle book. And so Babylon here is a picture of all those worldly systems. You might even say a picture of the things of the world that entice people to worship Satan and his beast. And we saw that at the end of the age, 
before Christ returns, she would fall, she would be destroyed. And this is what those people were lamenting. They were lamenting the fall of Babylon. Now, here in 19, 1 through 10, just before the appearing of Jesus on the last day, which we will see next week when we finish chapter 19, just before his appearance, much like we've seen time and again through these cycles, we're, we're catapulted were catapulted into the throne room of heaven. Where if you look in verses four through six, this should seem familiar to you, right? There's the four living creatures that surround the throne. And then there's the 24 elders. And you might remember that these 24 elders represent in 12s, right? The, the people of Israel and the people of the new covenant, or they, they represent the whole church, all of God's people from all of time, They represent the Old Testament and New Testament saints, you might say. We see them. We also see a familiar great multitude, which has been described for us in other places as every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This great multitude that no one can number, right? We see these four creatures. We see these elders. We see all of the people, the multitude around the throne, and they're erupting in glorious celebration. And look at verse one again. They're saying, hallelujah. They're saying, praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Four, not the number four. You might say, because Because why? What does it say? Look, his judgments are true and just. His judgments are true and just. The point here is that God is worthy of all of our worship, in fact, of all worship, because he exercises perfect justice And he does it in accordance with his law. At the end of this age, when Babylon is indeed brought to ruin, think about this, the rampant injustices and the unchecked evil that's faced in this life every day, almost every minute it's coming at us, every injustice, every evil will be brought to a complete end. On the last day, all those cries for justice that have echoed throughout history will indeed be satisfied. Just as early in Revelation, we saw the, the martyrs crying out from under the altar, when, oh God, when will you avenge? Here the time has come. They will be silenced. All those injustices, all those evils, all the cries for justice and the cries will all stop. And they're going to be replaced with the thunderous praise of God. With the thunderous praise of God. Verse 2 cites two primary causes for God's sovereign judgments. These are subpoints if you're taking notes. First, the text tells us that Babylon corrupted the earth with her immorality. She corrupted the earth with her immorality. The world tempts, the world is tempting. Right? The world tempts people to sin and to do so by making immoral and destructive acts seem attractive and pleasing. Did God really say, no, this is much better. This is much better. Come and do this. 
tempting us. The world tempts us away from the things of God. It's an offense to God. This is offensive to God. For God made mankind to to live in holiness and to live in his blessing. But just as sin deceitfully crept into the garden with Adam and Eve, so sin continues to creep in. Sin continues to deceive mankind. It even can lure us away from the worship of God to the worship of Satan, the chief sinner himself. The world has, the world's become corrupted, stained, you might say, by immorality. And listen, even though we're safe and secure in the arms of Jesus, if we're truly in him, even those of us who are in Christ can be easily enticed by it. We've made this case the last two weeks. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. Sin is enticing We have a call. Our call is to resist the fraudulent, counterfeit promises of this world. And instead, we're to cling to Christ and trust that he is better than anything Babylon has to offer. Christ is better. Sin is an empty promise. I know our catechism says that sin is any want of or conformity, right? Any want of desire to do or conformity unto God's law. But listen, if we were to add to that, maybe in our own vernacular, we would say sin is an empty promise. It promises life and it promises freedom and it promises pleasure. It promises so much. And yes, it is disobedience to God. It's actually a lack of wanting to obey God, but it is a fake promise. It's empty It fails to deliver, and the wages of sin is what? Death. We must, as we said last week, break up with the world. We must break up with the world. The second cause, so sub-point two here, the second cause for God's sovereign judgment is that he is avenging the blood of his servants something that we've already seen in the book. We see it coming to fruition. Many throughout history, as you know, have been persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, even today, right now at this moment, there are people facing death for their faith. And even when not under the threat of death, Christians still suffer. Christians are imprisoned. Christians are marginalized. Christians are scorned. And it's becoming more and more prevalent, even here. This happens as Babylon lashes out against the faithful witness of Christians. But in the end, the world's persecution of believers is going to be a chief cause of God's judgment and God's wrath. By finally judging those who shed his servant's blood, God's faithfulness will be praised, just as we clearly see here in verses 3 and 5. Echoes of Sodom and Gomorrah here. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then praise our God, all you his servants, verse 5. You who fear him, small and great, all of God's people, praise him, 
for this. And listen, I know we've, we've talked about this in prior messages. I know it can be difficult to accept. This is a difficult teaching, a difficult truth. And part of that is because it's, it's become so popular to downplay it, to downplay the Bible's teaching about wrath and about judgment and about hell in our day and age. And church today, church, worldwide church in general, seems to do all that it can to tuck these doctrines away, to put them out of sight, put them out of mind. But we can't. We can't do that. If we are to call ourselves people of the word, then we must know the word. We have to teach and embrace the whole word. It's one of the many reasons why for many years the church has preached through books of the Bible. Because we encounter things like sin and wrath and judgment. And so we must come face to face with God and what he teaches about it. And we must learn from it. The first movie that I remember seeing at a movie theater was Gremlins. It ages me. Why my mom chose that movie for our date night, I won't really know. But if you don't know, this definitely a B-horror flick. Um, these cute little fuzzy animals, right? You know, these cute little fuzzy things that a little boy gets one, right? And he has this job to do with this. This boy has his job to do. He's three rules when he gets this cute little furry thing that everyone loves. He, maybe you know these. You might know them better than me. They can't expose it to light, Right? Don't get it wet, and don't feed it after midnight, which my logical thinking young self was like, well, isn't everything after midnight? Like, when do you start? Anyway, but these are the three rules. And of course, all the rules are broken, right, in the first, like, 30 minutes of the film. And then what happens? This cute, furry little thing starts to multiply, (laughs) and then it turns into these horrible gremlins that just create all kinds of terror all over town. They're kind of arbitrary rules, right? They were just rules set up to keep it cute and fuzzy. But inside, it was vicious and ferocious. Now, you're going to critique me because this isn't a great one-to-one illustration. (laughs) Because God's not vicious and atrocious, things like that. But do you see that we do the same thing? The Bible teaches clearly about these things. And the temptation is to set up all kinds of fences and rules to, to keep from talking about this. Well, we don't talk about wrath in this church because we don't think it's very welcoming. Or whatever, insert whatever you may have heard. But instead, all we're doing is we're not equipping God's people to be able to open the word and read it on their own. And then the light shines. And they go, wait a minute, what God is this? And if you have experience evangelizing and discipling people as I do, you know that that creates havoc in the soul. I either accept this God that is clear. Some of these things are very clear in the Bible. Or I go ahead and worship a God I manufacture in my own image and say, he, oh, he didn't really say that. Oh, that sounds familiar. Did God really say? So he's a lion, but he's safe. And it's safe to know God's word. I know this is 
hard. We've talked about it weeks ago, but listen, if you deny the truth about wrath and judgment and hell, what you end up doing is downplaying the horrible nature of sin and really not helping people understand the gospel if we don't understand from what we've been saved from, we won't understand the gospel. So we can't let the world shape our thoughts and our feelings about sin. We have to recognize sin for what it is and accept the just judgment that it will face. Because the Bible is clear, sin and sinners face judgment. And I think when we, we do that, we get what, what I like to call a holy urgency, Right? We, we have within us, and I hope you leave here stirred with a holy urgency, right? I have to deal with this. I have to confess and repent of my sin. I believe God's word to be true. I've been rescued from this. But also, I know this person, and this person is a sinner. So I have an urgency. As J.I. Packer once said, if you see a building on fire, you run in there and tell people. You get close, you say, come out. And so we want to tell people, escape the judgment that is to come. Flee to Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, flee to Jesus. Only he can save you from your sins. That's the urgency we need to feel. We need to turn to Jesus, the the one true, holy, and perfect son of God who took upon himself the wrath that our sin deserves. God is both just and the justifier. Sin is dealt with, but for those of us in Jesus, it was dealt with on the cross. And this beautiful, wonderful mystery that causes us to say, hallelujah, what a savior. He became sin for us so that we can become his righteousness. We've escaped those sovereign judgments because one stood in our place. And you see, that truth compels us. It compels us to live for God by loving God, but it compels us to love others enough to tell them the truth. And one more thing, not surprisingly, it compels us to worship even more. Why? Why does it compel us to worship? Because it leads us to delight in what is the second great theme of our passage. So here's the second point this morning, God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. In verse seven, we're called to rejoice and exult and give God the glory because or for the marriage of the lamb has come. The marriage of the lamb has come. If you're familiar with the Bible in general, you know that throughout The Bible, salvation is presented as a love relationship between God and his people. Uh, In fact, if you want to mark this down and read this later, go to Hosea chapter 2, particular verses 19 and 20. Listen to what God told Hosea. He says, I will betroth you, engage you. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And Paul, over in Ephesians chapter 5, and he's instructing husbands, Paul saw this marriage promise from Hosea fulfilled in the redemptive work of Jesus. When he wrote this, he said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I've referenced him before, but Douglas Kelly, he said this, the Almighty Father planned to give his son the finest gift a father could give a son, a beautiful bride. So why did God make the world, Dr. Kelly asks? Why did he put me in it? It was because he wanted his son to have a marvelous bride, and he's invited us to be a part of that. Imagine that. Imagine that. The bride of Christ, the church, is the opposite of the great prostitute Babylon. We must see that the sovereign judgment of God against Babylon makes way for the sovereign grace of God for when Christ conquers all his enemies because at that time, the wedding feast will finally begin. And to grasp this, we need to think about weddings in biblical times, which covers a long time. But in general, wedding practices in the ancient Near East were a lot different than they are today. First, kids, listen, parents. Parents would arrange your engagements. Okay? First. Guys, let me know if you want to talk. All right. No. (laughs) Parents would arrange the engagement of their children And then they would talk about terms of the marriage, right? And you'd have to kind of go back and forth like a negotiation. What's the terms of this? And then once they're accepted, once the terms are accepted, there would be an intervening time, right, would take place between the engagement and the wedding itself. And during this time, the groom would have to pay the dowry to the father of the bride, He'd either have to pay or give or do something. My my friends in West Africa, it's not uncommon for them to have to bring goats uh, to be able to buy those, to buy furniture, buy dresses, buy all kinds of things in this time. So some of this is still practiced. The other option is that you have to provide yourself. If you don't have the means to buy things, part of the arrangement might be, I'll serve. Think of how Jacob agreed to do that. I'll serve for a period of time to, to have my wife. And so after that period of time and all the obligations were met, the wedding could finally happen. The bride would spend lots of time preparing and adorning herself so that she can be presented formally to her husband. And then there would be this huge processional in which the bride would would be taken from her father's house to the home of her husband. And upon her arrival, the groom would finally receive her and there would be a big feast, a banquet that could last as long as seven days. Notice that Jesus' ministry began at a wedding. And look at the end, a wedding. Yeah, look how William Hendrickson summarizes this wedding practice against Christ and his church. Look at this. He says, in Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood, and the engagement took place. The price, that is the dowry, was paid on Calvary. 
And now, after an interval, which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns. The bridegroom returns and says, it has come the wedding of the Lamb. Dr. Henderson finishes, he says, and we shall be with him forevermore. It will be a holy, blessed, everlasting fellowship, the fullest realization of all the promises of the gospel. Maybe if you're like me, this is cool, this is neat, this is interesting, but I got one question. How is it possible that I, that we, can ever fill this role as Christ's bride. I'm a sinner. How can I, how how can we who ourselves have betrayed God and all kinds of sin and idolatry ever qualify to be Christ's spotless and radiant bride? How is that possible? Look at verse eight. It gives the answer. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Here's a wonderful summary of gospel truth. It was granted her to clothe herself. Jesus Christ so loves his bride that he came to cleanse her from sin by dying on the cross. As I said before, to take her sin upon himself so that he might give to her his righteousness. So you see that the bride has been adorned with a spotless garment of the righteousness of Christ. And then furthermore, the bride, us who live in light of this, what we call justification, having Christ's righteousness imputed to us, our sin imputed to him there upon the cross. Once we live in light of this justification, as we make ourselves ready, look at verse 7, this clarifying statement. She clothes herself in the righteous deeds of the saints. That's verse 9. Sorry, we put it on in verse 7. We clothe ourselves in the righteous deeds of the saints, verse 9. It'd be easy to look at that and say, wait, isn't that contrary? Am, Am I clothing myself with Christ's righteousness or the righteous deeds of the saints? Yes, is the answer. Yes. It's not contrary. It's complementary. Why? Because... The dress given to Christ's bride reflects the way that she lives in this world through the faith she has in him. For the bride of Christ, she's justified by his imputed righteousness, but she's being sanctified by him. We are being made holy by Christ, by walking in the good works that he's prepared before us that we should walk in them, not to earn any kind of favor, not to make that dress look a little bit better, but to come to a greater and fuller realization of the dress we have. Your whole life is an opening up of seeing just how radiant of a bride you are. Sorry, guys. You're a radiant bride, guys. You see, justification and sanctification, justification, the work of God's free grace, or the act of God's free grace, and sanctification, the work of God's free grace, go hand in hand. They both flow from God and the sovereign grace that he shows through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to behold Behold the sovereign grace of God. 
behold it. His sovereign judgment against this world of sin serves to magnify, to to highlight, to, to shine a light on the sovereign grace bestowed upon those whom he's rescued from it. And look again, what does the angel say? What does the angel say in verse nine? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. You know, in the final chapters, and there's this desire to skip, right? To go right to the end. We're gonna see this picture again. We're gonna get a front row seat later for all that this blessing entails. But for now, listen, if you're in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, you are blessed. You are blessed indeed. You've been invited to that marriage supper. You have abundant reason to praise God. And so I believe that our response should be in line with John's. And here's what, I want you to go easy on on John, okay? I mean, look what happens. This is revealed to him by an angel. (laughs) What did he do? He fell down at the angel's feet and started to worship the angel. I think you'd do the same thing. And so would I, because this is marvelous. This is wonderful truth. But we've been given this word through the spirit of prophecy that is the Holy Spirit himself. He's revealed and inspired, revealed this to John and inspired John to write these things and preserved it for us so we have it today. And we have this word, we have this testimony of Jesus right here, right now, right in front of us. So how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Look, I I don't expect to see a mass falling down. I don't expect to hear a triumphant shout of praise to suddenly erupt, although I would welcome that. But here's what I think is more suited for us. Do what you were created to do. Respond according to your divinely granted default programming. Everybody worships. Don't worship the things of this world. Worship God. Not just on Sunday mornings, but may your every moment of every day be an endless stream, an ever-flowing chorus of hallelujahs to the one true God, the Father who's chosen you in his love, the Son who's redeemed you from your sin and his spirit who seals all those promises on your heart so that you know it to be true. Worship him. Let your whole life be an offering of praise and thanksgiving and glory and exaltation to God. I love it when the application is this clear. Two words, worship God. Worship God, amen and amen.